Hello and welcome. You're listening to Leadership Playbook, a London Business School podcast exploring the latest thinking and key issues for leaders and those aspiring to lead. I'm Viola Rollins, Executive Director of the London Business School Leadership Institute. I'll be the host of a series of episodes of Leadership Playbook focusing on various aspects of leadership. And today's topic is ethics. Joining me is Daniel Efron, a social psychologist who studies ethics and morality and is an associate professor of organizational behavior here at London Business School. Daniel, delighted to have you here as a guest today. Thanks so much for inviting me, Viola. Looking forward to our chat. Super. Now, I want to start not by embarrassing you, (laughs) but by congratulating you. I feel you are a great example of a research scholar who's been successful in disseminating and talking about their research in a way that's highly engaging to multiple audiences. For example, your work has appeared in a number of top scholarly publications. And I believe you've stimulated thinking in the academic community around issues relating to ethics and morality. In fact, you took a lead in advocating for a standalone leading ethically research pillar to be included in the LBS Leadership Institute's research framework. But your work has also been picked up by popular media outlets, such as the BBC, New York Times, Washington Post, and The Atlantic. And you were also featured on an episode of Malcolm Gladwell's cult podcast, Revisionist History, which I have to confess having listened to a couple of times. So one of the things I'm curious to know is what is it about your work that you feel has generated such an interest across a broad spectrum (laughs) <laughs> That's a hard question to ask, and, and be, I want to be modest. I can tell you where my ideas come from. I try to walk this line between making theoretical contributions to the scholarly literature, but also speaking to important real-world problems. My tool for research is the laboratory experiment, and I try to conduct experiments that, although they're necessarily artificial, to give us a lot of control over the variables that we're studying, they're metaphors for real-world experience. And I hope that practitioners and people outside of the academic community can easily see the real-world phenomena that they speak to. So I get most of my ideas not from reading academic journal articles, but from reading the newspaper and kind of wondering about what's, what's going on in the world. And... What might a psychologist have to say about that? Yeah, that's great. And personally, I feel your research appeals to such a wide audience because it really delves into essential and delicate dimensions of the human experience. So to start us off, perhaps you can share a bit about what you've been recently exploring in regard to the concept of ethics and morality? Sure. Why don't we start with the line of research I've been doing for a while on how people think about hypocrisy. So this would be an example of of work that's inspired by reading the paper. And it seems like every week there are dozens of examples of public figures, leaders being condemned for hypocrisy. In fact, I have an alert set on Google to send me any news articles that mention the word hypocrisy. I've had to turn it off because I just get inundated. You know, so it's clear that people hate hypocrisy. But the question that has been on my mind for a little while is what is it about hypocrisy that people hate? Or a little bit more precisely, what do people mean when they condemn someone as a hypocrite? So we often think about hypocrisy as a failure to practice what you preach, a lack of alignment between your words and your deeds. But 
you can think of some counterexamples of when people don't do what they say they'll do, and we don't condemn them as a hypocrite. You know, so, uh, like a classic example from philosophical debates about this would be someone who tells friends and family members, "Don't start using heroin," and that person is a heroin addict himself. There's clear inconsistency between words and deeds, but you don't think the person is a hypocrite. You think they're addicted. They kind of can't help the, the misalignment. And so I've been doing some studies for a while looking at what are the explanations that, for inconsistency that makes someone a hypocrite. And the bottom line from this is we only think inconsistency is, is hypocritical if we think the person is trying to get away with something. If they're trying to feel or appear more ethical than they deserve to feel or appear. So it's not just we hate inconsistency, it's that we hate people that are trying to claim some sort of moral benefit that they're not entitled to. And you know, I think this has important implications for, for how we think about uh, hypocrisy and leadership. So you know, if you look at books that give leaders advice, a typical refrain is, you should minimize misalignment. There's a lot of good research showing that you know, when leaders say and do different things, their followers don't trust them. They become less motivated. They're more likely to leave the organization. I mean, a host of negative things, right? But my co-authors and I like to argue that, well, yeah, minimize misalignment would be great, but probably a more realistic kind of advice would be to, to manage misalignment. And there are really three reasons why we make this argument. So by, by manage misalignment, we mean recognize that saying and doing exactly the same thing all the time is probably impossible. And leaders need to be able to anticipate and deal with the fallout from that and, and try to minimize the fallout from their inconsistency. Listening to you makes me think about conversations that I have with leaders that I'm working with, either in a coaching relationship or on development programs and the concept of stakeholder management or stakeholder engagement in complex systems. Mm -hmm. And interestingly enough, the issue of I need to say one thing to one stakeholder, but something else to another stakeholder seems to be a dilemma I hear them raising a lot. Yeah. I'm nodding vigorously as, as you're talking because this is one of the reasons I think it's, it's unrealistic to just tell leaders to minimize misalignment because everyone in the world, but especially leaders, need to please different people in different situations and in different times. And so having a completely uniform message may be impractical or impossible. And the important thing to realize is that won't make you a hypocrite in everyone's eyes. I think, you know, in some ways it's, it's a risk to try to hide these inconsistencies because the more you try to conceal them, the more it seems like you're trying to fool people. And that's what makes people seem like a hypocrite, not, not the inconsistency per se. So I, I agree that reporting to multiple stakeholders makes it difficult to be totally consistent. Another reason why it's hard to be totally consistent is sometimes we might want to espouse lofty ideals or promote certain values that end up being impractical to live up to, right? So bureaucratic barriers might get in the way, or there may be like a crisis and we need to divert funds to some other project. And sometimes I worry that it seems like I'm defending hypocrites, right? So like, I, I don't want to be seen as saying managers should go off and be hypocritical all the time and then just try to make sure that people don't perceive them as being hypocritical. That's not at all what I'm saying. I'm saying sometimes there are actually morally legitimate reasons to be inconsistent. And one of those might be you want to promote stretch goals when it comes to ethical ideals, even if it's not 100% certain that you're going to be able to live up to them. 
So a, a phrase that I'm fond of uttering is, if a spotless moral record were required to stand up for what's right, then most of us would have to remain seated. We don't want to live in a world where only the completely pure of heart and action are entitled to promote ethical ideals. So, you know, a solution for this for, for leaders is, is to actually be upfront about the difficulty of living up to certain ideals. So if you say, I think it's really important uh, that we all work for this goal, look, even I sometimes fall short of that. I do my best, but I'm human. I'm not always able to live up to that. But we, we should all try to do better. Then if you don't live up to that ideal, you won't feel and be perceived as, as much of a hypocrite because you're well, again, you're not trying to get away with anything. You're not trying to pretend that you're more virtuous than you really are. You're saying, look, I'm flawed like the rest of us, but still, let us uh, aim for something better. And I suspect what can help in that situation is the leader being open to feedback. So saying, look, this is what we're looking to achieve. Sometimes I'm not going to perform in the way that I'd like to, but let's keep an open dialogue about that. I'll give you feedback, we'll get into conversation, and I'm open to your feedback as well. Yeah, that really resonates with um, something I see in my class. This is, this is not based on my research, just uh, anecdotal from, uh, from teaching ethics. And I, and I wonder if it's something you've seen in your work with leaders as well. When I teach ethics, I'll urge people to you know, create space to talk about ethical conundrums, that one of the ways to create a more ethical organization is to ensure that the idea of ethics stays top of mind in, in more situations than it currently does. And sometimes students will say, well, I don't really want to talk about things that I'm uncertain about in the ethics domain because I'm afraid that people will suspect me of being unethical, right? Like if I say, you know, I'm sort of tempted to do this, but I'm not sure if it's okay. Or look, I really don't know what the best thing to do in this situation is. This seems good for the organization. This seems good for clients. Is there even an ethical dimension here? What should I be thinking about? They're worried that having those conversations will cast aspersions on their moral character. And I think leaders can counteract this by modeling that everyone's human, none of us are morally perfect. Not only do we not know what to do in complex ethical situations, but sometimes we make mistakes. So in the ethics space, people often talk about um, leading by example. You know, leaders need to set an ethical example. Totally true. I completely agree with that. But I think part of that is not just always doing the right thing, it's fessing up when either you've done what you now think is the wrong thing or you just don't know what to do. I think that allows other people to speak up and, and engage with those issues as well. Yes, yes, that's great. And I do hear these themes emerging in conversations that I have with leaders around ethics and morality. And one of the things I say to them is you can't necessarily expect to work all this out in your head. Mm -hmm. You need to get into conversation with trusted colleagues, hear different points of view, mm. use your trusted peers as sounding boards to help you develop your thinking, your principles, and also get clear on your value set. Yeah. And I think that's a really important perspective. Sometimes when I ask students, how can you do a better job living up to your values? They'll cite what's sometimes called the, the New York Times test or the FT test, right, where they say, well, how would I feel if this action were, were written about on the front page of the, of the FT or the Wall Street Journal or whatever? And I mean, that's fine. That's a good first step. But I agree with you that you, you can't just work it all out in your head because we're so good at convincing ourselves that we're living up to our values and acting ethically 
when an objective observer <laughs> would have trouble swallowing that. So rather than just imagining what would people say if they saw it on the front page of the New York Times, actually go and talk to people about it and make the decision that you're considering making public and see, do people really say, yeah, that's fine? Or do they kind of look at you funny and think that the decision needs a little bit more justification? So yeah, I, I agree. We shouldn't be just working out ethical dilemmas in our own head, not only because it's hard, but also because we're really good at leading ourselves astray without realizing it. Right. Now, I want to add another dimension to this, Daniel, and get your thoughts on how the things that we've talked about so far might affect leaders who are in global leadership roles. So they're managing or leading people in different countries than the one they're in, or they're managing and leading multicultural teams. Are there any extra things that leaders in those type of situations need to keep in mind? Yeah, th thanks for asking. So I've, I've done some work on this. The issue of what does it mean to say one thing or do another? How do people perceive folks that don't practice what they preach? Um, the answer to that question depends a lot on the cultural context in which people are embedded. So this is, this is research that the Leadership Institute at LVS kindly funded. So thanks, thanks for that. Listeners, she didn't tell me to say that, but I, I thought I'd put in a, a plug anyway. So let me give you a little bit of background on, on cultural psychology to contextualize this. What does it mean to be a self? What is a self? Like, what is an individual? Well, in countries like the US, where I'm from, like the UK, like parts of Western Europe, the self is defined as basically based on internal attributes, as an individual separate from its roles and relationships and social context. When someone acts in a certain way, you explain that behavior by saying, oh, they're the kind of person who does X. There's something about their internal attributes that explains their behavior. But the majority of the world's populations live in countries that think about the self pretty differently on average. That you can't think about a self as divorced from its social context. That who a person is is defined not only by internal attributes, but also by the roles and relationships that we all inhabit. Right? So it's, you know, I'm not just, I don't know, an extrovert who likes theater and enjoys thinking about ethics. I'm a father and, and a member of the LBS team and connected to the Leadership Institute and this, that, and the other thing. Right? And how people think about the self has really important implications for how people interpret inconsistency. So if I'm in a culture like, uh, say, the US, thinks about the self as independent, and I say one thing or do another, people assume that I'm trying to fool them, that my actions reflect my deep internal attributes, and my words are some attempt to disguise or mislead people about those internal attributes. Right? So I preach virtue and I practice vice. They think I'm really a bad person who's disguising his bad attributes with fancy words. So they would think I, I was a hypocrite. But in a different country, say, say Japan or another place in East Asia or Southeast Asia or South Asia or Latin America, inconsistency would be much more expected. If my behavior is determined by roles and relationships and the social context I inhabit, it wouldn't make sense to act completely consistently all the time because everyone has lots of different roles in their lives, lots of different relationships, lots of different social contexts. Said a little bit differently, folks from these cultural backgrounds tend to be really sensitive to this idea of um, stakeholders that you were talking about. If someone gives two different messages, a sort of top-of-mind explanation is, oh, they must have different obligations to different people or to different groups. They must be saying one thing in one role and another thing in another role. 
And so you can take the same example of a behavior, saying one thing and doing another, and folks in, I guess you could call them more individualistic countries, will say, that's hypocrisy. I don't trust that person. Whereas folks in more, you could call them collectivistic countries, would be more likely to say, that makes sense. That person's not trying to fool me. They're actually doing a good job figuring out what different groups and stakeholders need and delivering appropriately. They're doing a good job. I trust them. So that, that's a very long way of saying, saying one thing but doing another can be hypocritical in, you could think of like the West, whereas saying one thing or doing another may be considered a lot more appropriate and not at all hypocritical in countries in the so-called East as well as Latin America. And just spin out the implications a little bit farther, this whole idea of minimize misalignment this advice that leaders often get from popular books, minimize misalignment, that's a very kind of Western-centric piece of advice. And you know, it makes sense to give people that advice in Western cultural contexts if misalignment between words and deeds risks making you look like a hypocrite. But in you know, the majority of the world, minimize misalignment may not be the top of the priority list. Figuring out what's appropriate for each group and contributing to the organization and preserving harmony and things like that might be a lot more important for things like trust than just consistency. I think this is fantastic because for me, it really underlines the importance of situational leadership, which many folks feel was a passing fad. Mm -hmm. And I believe it's just something that will always be important because you have to think about the context you're operating in to then use that to guide you in terms of how you need to show up in a way that's uh, effective and engaging. Now, there's another area of your work, Daniel, that I feel is especially relevant for leaders and also has a lot of relevance to the consumption of today's news agenda and social and political commentary, and that's fake news and misinformation. So share some of your thoughts with us on that concept. Sure. Yeah, I've been really concerned and interested in this so-called post-truth world that we're living in these days. You see a lot of concern about misinformation in politics, but there's a lot of misinformation about business organizations as well. Uh, at some point in the last couple of years, some of the most shared fake news articles were like false rumors about major corporations. So, you know, everyone needs to be worried about this stuff. In order to figure out how to fight misinformation, you need to know why people spread misinformation. And the working assumption of uh, a lot of great work on this right now has been that people share it because they believe it. So you're clicking through Facebook and you see a news headline and you just you share it because you think it's true. And if that's why people are sharing misinformation, then what you need to do is develop techniques for teaching people to distinguish between fact and fiction. As a social psychologist who studies morality, I have a different concern about why misinformation spreads. That concern is that sometimes people don't believe it, and they just don't care. They're perfectly willing to spread misinformation that they know is false. So one statistic that comes to mind is that something like 17% of adults in the US and 13% of adults in the UK will admit to having shared fake news knowing that it was fake at the time on social media. So it's not just that they believe it, it's sometimes they think it's okay. So what I've been trying to figure out is why do people think it's okay? And 
it may be easy to dismiss people as like, oh, well, some people are just liars, like they don't care about the truth. But that doesn't actually fit with the data, because if you ask people, do you think it's important to share content that's true, when you ask people in general, they say, oh, yeah, like people care a lot about, about honesty and integrity, at least in the abstract. And yet, when it comes down to it, they're still willing to share false content, even when they recognize that it's false at the time. So what, what I've been, been arguing and what some of my experiments support is that people's judgments of whether it's moral to share misinformation are really malleable. You can push them around by making fake content feel a little bit truthier. So here I'm distinguishing between what we believe to be true in our heads and what we feel to be truthy in our guts. And I'm actually not drawing on a lot of psychology research here. I'm drawing on comedian Stephen Colbert, who many years ago coined this term truthiness. So the idea is that even if you know something's false, if you kind of can't shake the feeling in your gut that there's something to it, then you think it's less morally problematic to share. And there are a lot of reasons why someone might think that something is truthy. So a kind of straightforward reason is if it aligns with your politics. If you like the lie, it's going to be hard to shake the feeling that there's something to it, even if you know that the details of it are false. A more interesting and perhaps scary thing that can make something feel truthy is if you've seen it a bunch of times before, you might not be able to shake the feeling that there's something to it. So I've done a bunch of experiments where I have people rate how unethical it is to share fake news articles. And some of those fake news articles they're seeing for the first time. And some of them I've shown to them two or three times over the last 10 minutes. And so, you know, on average, the only difference between these articles are, have you seen it a couple times in the last 10 minutes, or are you seeing it for the first time? And people think the fake news articles are less unethical to share, and they're actually more likely to share them themselves if they've seen them at the beginning of the study than if they're seeing them for the first time. And so this is a concern because there's research showing that fake news spreads at faster rates on social media than real news. Fake news really easily goes viral. And when it goes viral, the same person is likely to encounter the same piece of fake news again and again and again as multiple friends share it, pops up in their news stream and so forth. And my research suggests that you think it's less unethical to share just because you've seen it before, presumably because if it seems familiar, it acquires a, a ring of truthfulness to it, even if you know that it's false. Wow. The former example you gave, I could, as a fellow psychologist, think about through the <laughs> lens of confirmation bias. So my hypothesis is people often share information that may or may not be true, but it confirms their view of the world and what they believe and what they want to see. So that confirmation bias is a bit of an engine, potentially, for them passing it on. But the truthiness, I don't know. Where, where do we go with that? Yeah. Well, one place where I've been taking that is, is what can we do about it? Yeah, good. <laughs> give, us, give us your thoughts on that. Yeah, right. So again, the concern is that it's all too easy for people to spread misinformation, even when they know it's false, because it's really easy to make them feel like misinformation is truthy. Like even if you just repeat the same falsehood again and again and again. But, well, I haven't nailed it yet, but I'll tell you on about something I have in progress. I would need more data before I spoke confidently about it, so I'll, I'll offer it as an interesting hypothesis that has some evidence. So the goal would be to, to get people to think a little bit more carefully about morality. 
So this idea of truthiness, I mentioned it's a gut feeling. It doesn't come from the head, it comes from the gut. And that's often how people make moral judgments. Like if we see someone doing something wrong, we don't always take the time to think how many people have been harmed, how common is that behavior, what were the person's intentions. We often have this, what uh, psychologist John Haidt calls, a flash of negative affect. We get angry. We feel a strong negative emotion, and that emotion is what drives our moral judgments most of the time. But with a little bit of effort, you can shift people in the moment from paying attention to their emotions and their gut to thinking a little bit more carefully about why they think something is right or wrong. I call that moral deliberation, thinking carefully about right and wrong. And I have a little bit of evidence that some of these effects of truthiness go away when you get people to think a little bit more carefully about morality. So if you show people the same fake news articles a bunch of times, but then you say, can you give us two reasons why you think it would be ethical or unethical to share this? It kind of slows people down and they're like, well, wait, I guess I can't really articulate why I think it would be okay to share something that I know it's false. And then they're less inclined to share fake news, even if they've seen it before. Similarly with politics. In general, people are more likely to share fake news if it aligns with their politics, even when they know it's false. But if you ask people, can you give me two reasons why you think it would be ethical or unethical to, to share that? People are like, huh, well, now, now that you mentioned, I can't really think of a good justification, so I'm not going to share it, even though my gut says, go ahead. <laughs> the big question is, how would a social media platform scale up this kind of intervention, because these platforms are basically designed to make people think with their guts instead of their heads. You're scrolling through lots of information really quickly. You know, you're, you're making quick decisions about sharing or liking or ignoring. But maybe there are some things we can do to, to help people slow down and think a little bit more careful about morality. I feel confident that some of the social media platforms are already trying that. For example, I'm a Twitter user, and these days when I'm on Twitter, I see something and I think, ah, oh, I want to retweet that. But then a message comes up saying, actually, you haven't read all the way through this. Do you still want to retweet it? And I'm like, wow, okay, let me just pause. Yeah. And my sense is that it would probably be easier than we think to plant those seeds with people. Yeah, you know, the part of my intervention that I think is straightforward to implement at least as far as it goes, is getting people to slow down. I was really glad when I heard that Twitter had implemented these sort of checkpoints, like we noticed you haven't read it, because uh, it's not very intrusive, but it does just require people to think a little bit more. The part of my intervention that I think is, is tricky to, to scale up is the part that's about morality, because moral deliberation has two parts, the deliberation and the morality part. So I think you, know, you can get people to slow down and think, wait, have I read this? Wait, is it true? And I want to claim that's a good first step and is probably pretty effective, but it's not going to be sufficient because there are some people who they know that it's false already. Thinking about it more or like reading it more isn't going to change their, their belief about it, yet they're still willing to share it because they think it's morally acceptable. So the challenge, I think, is to get people not just to stop and think, but to stop to think about their moral values and whether sharing something they know is false aligns with those values. So, in the context of the things we've discussed, can you share what you feel are the big takeaways for leaders? What are the things you think it's critical for them to, to think about? Well, we've talked about that a little bit with the hypocrisy research, so I'll, I'll try to focus some on the, the fake news research. I mean, the real-world phenomenon that inspired that research, there were two. One is, there's a lot of fake news on social media, 
but also there are a lot of leaders that promote falsehoods repeatedly and you know sort of what effect does that have on people and when will people echo that but i guess the broader point about moral deliberation i think applies not just to politics and social media but it's consistent with this idea that it's really important to keep ethics top of mind in, in organizations so psychologists talk about this very poetic term called ethical fading which is the idea that at one point in time, you may think there's this bright line that I would never cross. My values say I would never go across that line. But as you get closer to that line, it gets a little dimmer. It fades from view until you find yourself on the other side without realizing it. And the argument is that, in, particularly in business organizations, that's because decisions are thought of as business decisions and not as ethical decisions. And so people don't often recognize the ethical relevance. And the solution to that would be moral deliberation, which is uh, what I was talking about in terms of fake news, thinking about morality. And at organizations, this means not just having like a Thursday afternoon ethics training once every couple years. This involves coming up with processes that allow discussions of ethics to be baked into important decisions that are going to be made. It relates to what we were talking about before, Viola, with we've both talked to leaders who say that not everyone feels comfortable speaking up when they have an ethical dilemma because they, they, maybe they don't think it's appropriate or they don't want to seem like they're unethical themselves. If in every major decision, there's like a key time where everyone talks about the ethical implications of the decision, then that should prevent this kind of ethical fading where people just kind of forget about ethics. And it doesn't require people to feel comfortable raising an ethical objection when no one's talking about it. That's, that's really hard to do to just bring up ethics out of the blue. So I guess I would urge leaders to, to normalize this sort of moral deliberation and model it. Yes, it strikes me that a good framework to use to maybe do that is to think about stakeholders. Mm. If you're making decisions as a leader or as a team, st stopping to take the time to say, okay, so what might that mean for our peers or suppliers, for our customers, or for our government relationships? One sort of ethical blind spot that people fall prey to is that there ends up being too much psychological distance between themselves and stakeholders who they may end up harming with a decision. It's one thing to type some numbers into a spreadsheet or fire off an email that affects lots and lots of people's lives in a negative way. It's another thing to take the time to imagine what those people might think and feel. And it's another thing entirely to walk over to them and deliver the news while looking them in the eye. So thinking carefully about the different stakeholders, I agree, is a good first step. It's, it's all too easy to put psychological distance between ourselves and them. So what I'm translating this into is you're suggesting that leaders develop a practice or a discipline that will help them and their teams nurture a habit of thinking about ethics and also accepting that unethical mindsets and practice could happen in their organizations, not falling into the trap of saying, actually, we're above this. This could never happen here. Absolutely. In my ethics classes, I try to teach ethical humility. There are some students, when I ask them, at least at the beginning of the class, what are you going to do to live up to your values? They say, well, I, I have a good conscience. I'll be fine. And they, you know, they might be right as individuals, but on average, that's a very dangerous tactic. Um, our psychology is, is not always set up to lead us to, to be true to our values. So I agree with you, Viola, that developing good practice and, and good habits uh, for yourself and the people you're leading is an important step. I guess I would go even farther and say 
good procedures, good process, because habit still suggests that you're like relying on people to remember or to be motivated to dig into ethical issues in the heat of the moment. You can imagine an analogy to trying to eat healthier. You know, you can develop healthy eating habits, but it's also easy to like break those habits if there's like a pint of Ben and Jerry's <laughs> lying around your home. Better is to have a process about like, well, not having the Ben and Jerry's <laughs> at home if you don't want to eat it, I guess. Maybe it's not a perfect analogy to ethics, but the idea would be to take, to take discretion out of the equation, uh, discretion when it comes to, are we going to talk about ethics now or not? So there should be like time set aside in advance of the meeting where this is where we have our, our ethics conversations. And it shouldn't just be like a pro forma, tick the box. Uh, people should be incentivized to really dig deep into the issues, admit when they're not sure what to do, and pause the decision if ethical issues come up. Great. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation, Daniel. But what I'd like to close with is by asking you, are there any other thoughts you'd like to share on how leaders who want to create an ethical environment can do that? Yeah, I mean, I guess I could say a few things about ethics trainings. I think that's in general a good thing. But I worry that in some cases, they're sort of pro forma, tick the box, Thursday afternoon, let's talk about ethics. A good ethics training won't just focus on how to ensure that you don't get sued, to ensure that you don't break any laws. I think a good ethics training will focus people on those psychological traps or blind spots that can lead good people to do bad things, even if they're not breaking the law. Right? You know, I urge organizations to think about who are this, the senior champions of this program. So is this just seen as like something that the lawyers are making everyone do? or something that's sort of coming from HR, or are there a few like really senior people that care a lot about ethics and they're endorsing these kinds of trainings? And I also always encourage organizations to, to think about what happens when the training is over. Do people ever talk about it again? Is it integrated in day-to-day <laughs> -day conversations? Or is it just like, no, we're done. Now we're ethical. We can move on and think about other things. I guess the point of that is the context in which these ethics trainings are presented, I think, should be important for how effective they actually are. Yes, and this makes me think about the difference between ethics training and ethics development, because, you know, training can easily turn into a process where it's presented as uh, if you understand you, you've read this, you just tick the box, right? Versus taking a more developmental approach, which for me is about you have this information, you have these constructs and understanding. How are you now going to develop your capabilities to be a more ethical leader in your day-to-day -day environment? Oh, great distinction. And going back to something I said earlier, I don't think this capability development happens by just thinking about it. It's mm -hmm. about being placed in situations having discussions about real-life dilemmas. Mm -hmm. uh, so you can actually develop that thinking, that perspective that's going to serve you, as you say, when you're in the heat of the moment. Yeah, I love this term development because it, it signals that living up to our personal values is, is a lifelong journey. And very few people probably in the history of the world have ever attained that, you know, 100%. So, you know, we can all do better. It's, uh, we all need to constantly work at it. Yeah, it's it's a muscle. You have to right. keep developing it. You've got to keep it in shape, too. Yeah. Thank you, Daniel, for taking the time to come along and engage in this very interesting, thought-provoking topic. Violet, it's always a pleasure to chat with you. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Thank you. You've been listening to Leadership Playbook, a London Business School podcast. 
If you like what you've heard, subscribe to the podcast. Just search London Business School in your podcasting app of choice. To receive a curated selection of articles, podcasts, and films direct to your inbox each fortnight, subscribe to Think at London Business School, the place to go for thought leadership and business insights from London Business School faculty and alumni. Just tap the link in the show notes below. Also, don't forget to check out the activities and thought leadership pieces emerging from the London Business School Leadership Institute. Links to our website can also be found in the show notes below. Thanks again for joining us. 